This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Eric Golden, and my guest today is Avery Akini. As president of Vayner3, Avery has been at the forefront of guiding chief marketing officers, brands, and corporations into Web3. This conversation is a little different for me as we focus on marketing and how to both connect and grow audiences in Web3. I am fascinated by Avery's work on Super Bowl commercials and learning what it is really like to work with creative brands like Budweiser and Pepsi. To start this episode, I asked Avery to teach me about how traditional marketing works before diving into case studies of how brands successfully leverage blockchain technology like NFTs. We then go behind the scenes with VaynerMedia and their rapid testing of ideas on Gary V himself and her personal experience with their project, VFriends. Please enjoy my conversation with Avery Akini. So Avery, I think a fun place to start before we dive into Web3 and Vayner3 and your role there would be to talk about traditional marketing. Coming from the finance world and talking to people on Wall Street or other operators, sometimes brand and marketing is the siloed area we don't know about. I never knew where a Fidelity ad came from or how that got put together. And getting the chance to meet this whole new marketing world, you and some other friends, I've learned a lot of new words like activation campaign, stuff I didn't know about. I thought a place to level set would be to talk about traditional marketing, something like the Super Bowl or the Olympics, things that you've been involved in, where you go to a large brand and how it really starts from the beginning and walking through the mechanics of a brand wants to expose a message or a product to their audience, how do they work with someone like Vayner to bring that to life? Yeah, it's a great place to start, Eric. I've actually spent my entire career in marketing. So this is a place that I know very deeply and love. And I've specifically focused mostly on digital marketing, but some of the biggest moments of culture happen when hundreds of millions of people are tuned in to moments like the Super Bowl or the Olympics or huge sporting events or huge cultural events. And it's really fun and really special and really exciting if you love brand building to be part of those moments and be a part of helping brands connect with their consumers emotionally during those key points. So 
I spent my early career at Google and we did a lot of product marketing. There was some brand marketing, but a lot of it was talking functionally about products and how they make people's lives better, how Google helps people discover new information and get more out of the internet. And when I joined Vayner, I was exposed to far more brand building campaigns, campaigns that make you want to drink a Pepsi Zero or campaigns that make you want to try a new skincare product. And Traditional brand builders know how absolutely critical marketing is to the bottom line of their business. Take an example like a Red Bull. Red Bull spends about 20% of their total revenue, I believe, on marketing, which is far more than their competitive set. And they really created this emotional connection with their product that makes people believe that Red Bull gives you wings, that makes you believe that Red Bull can help you surf something incredible, ski something incredible, race something incredible. And they've done this through a really strategic campaign of extreme sports and helping to underscore that message in all of these really unique ways. When you look at consumer packaged goods, FMCG more broadly, a lot of the products are actually really, really similar. And what differentiates them is the emotional connection that people feel to a certain brand of water or a certain brand of toilet paper that makes them pay two, three, five X what's available at the generic brand level. So it's been really fun to use marketing as a lever to drive business. I've had the opportunity to work on some incredible stuff from Super Bowl campaigns with iconic brands like Planters and Pepsi and many others to Olympics campaigns. We had a, it's actually probably the biggest swing of my career at the time when I was running Vayner in Singapore, and we were working with a Japanese skincare brand on their first ever Olympics activation at Tokyo 2020 which of course ended up being a huge pivot moment that led me to where I am today. But broadly, when you're working with brands on these moments, there's so much work that goes into planning all the little details. And as a consumer, you just see a 30-second ad spot and maybe laugh or maybe smile or maybe don't think anything. But there's a lot of theater that goes into every little bit of it, a lot of strategy, a lot of research and teams of dozens of people behind the scenes. Everyone from the consumer researchers understanding what people care about, what people think is funny, what's the emotional connection, what's the product benefit key message. There's that strategy. There's the creative people who actually come up with the idea, who help tell the story that materializes through at first a concept and then a script and then a storyboard. And then the production people who actually make everybody look good and work with the celebrities and book in the talent and cut it down to what you see on TV. And then there's also the team doing all the orchestration and amplification, the people behind the brands tweeting and posting on TikTok and replying. All of that takes this incredible amount of orchestration from both brand side people and agency partners to pull it off. So one day I'll have to take you behind the curtain of the dozens of people that are involved in pulling off something like a Super Bowl commercial, but probably way more than an average consumer would realize. Oh, yeah, I'm sure it is. That's why I think it's such a fascinating place to get grounded in of. I'm curious, just on an ad like the Olympics to the skincare company, do you have to do all this work in advance and then do a bunch of agencies that are competing with Vayner all come up with these clever pitches and then go to the company and say, like, this is how we're going to make you famous or this is why you should spend $7 million with us? Or is it like they've worked with you and you've built a relationship and so then you're like, I think this is your year to do a Super Bowl ad? It could be either. So in a lot of cases, agencies and brands work together for many, many years. Let's just take an example like VaynerMedia and VaynerX and PepsiCo. That's a long relationship, maybe a decade. Same with like an Anheuser-Busch and Vayner. Long, long relationships where there's a level of trust. There's also a level of what's worked in the past. 
So they might brief out an agency partner. Almost all brands have many agency partners, some who are more specialist oriented and some who are generalist. For Vayner, we're really known as being a social first agency. So even if we're doing something like a Super Bowl commercial, where we're able to create differentiation is really the understanding of social and digital trends. And then there might be another agency who's more of a design focused agency, and they might be doing the billboards. There might be another agency who's the search focused agency, who's focused on understanding how to maximize Google search. And then there might be uh, what's called an above the line agency who either brings it all together. That's your more traditional holding company is the publicly traded guys like WPP or Publicis Group who have many agencies within them. But to answer your question, oftentimes it's long-term relationships, but almost always there is some element of a pitch where brand will say, hey, folks, we have this new product launching. We want to drive trial of this. And our objective is to generate X million dollars or generate X number of people trying the product. What do you think we can do to achieve this goal? So at the end of the day, marketing has to be ROI positive. It has to drive business. And there's a lot of ways to track that. There's even analytics agencies who help track that. Coming to agencies with a core brief is typically about solving a business problem. Agencies then come back and are like, hey, here are my top three ideas. Client, what do you think? Client then selects from these agencies who they want to partner on for the program or project or initiative. Then it's off to the races. In my experience, there are typically many agencies involved in a big orchestration like that. And there's even a fun acronym called IAT, Interagency Team, which is a place where all the agencies get together and talk about how the PR and the search and the above the line and the social all comes together for one cohesive campaign. And once in a while, you do get a new upstart in there. I think the fun thing about being in a professional services company is that you're only as good as your last work. Even if you're known for doing things many times over, we're only as good as our last campaign, as our last program, as our last Super Bowl. That's something that drives a fire in a lot of people. Gary's talked a lot about this, is you constantly have to reinvent what you're doing and constantly come up with new ways to engage consumers. It's not like you can rinse and repeat like more of a product business. Consumers are changing, so the ideas have to change. So once in a while, you also do see a new agency in the mix. Maybe it's relationship-driven. Maybe it's the new CMO and this was their old agency and they want to give them a shot on their new brand. Happens a lot. Or maybe it's an agency who has recently opened in a new market or has recently had a breakthrough piece of work that starts gaining attention. And that's what keeps this industry really fun is there's the best agencies of the year in 2022 won't be the same ones in 2023, which keeps all of us on our toes. Yeah, I can imagine that's competitive. One thing specifically I want to drill in on is how long does it take? Because I would assume that one thing I've learned from the marketing world is that stuff takes way longer than I thought. If you're going to have a Super Bowl event or a commercial, these things can start a year ahead. But then Gary and Vayner seem to like want to be on the cutting edge. You guys talk a lot about the pulse, what's hot right now. So how the hell do you know what's hot right now to then plan an event a year in advance and hope it doesn't completely land flat and it's still not the thing anymore and you look completely silly? I think Vayner has always had finger on the pulse and agility as one of our key skill sets and key advantages and differentiators. We're an independent agency, so we're not part of a holding company and we're not publicly traded, which means we can pivot in a way that companies that need to report to the street aren't always able to do. So we can make investments in things that we see as coming up, even if they're not here quite yet. I think that's served us very well. And our agility and ability to pivot 
has also served us very well. Yes, there are times when you need to plan a year out and that's part of the process and that's part of marketing when you have clients who are Fortune 500 organizations. But some of our best ideas have gone from here's a thought to like we're live in two weeks. What a lot of marketers won't tell you is that is possible. And we do stuff like that all the time. I just mentioned that creating that emotional connection with consumers is critical for driving brand growth. And relevance is a huge piece of that, that so many brands actually miss out on because they have to have their social posts approved two months in advance. Some of the most relevant and salient moments in Vayner history have happened because we had our finger on the pulse and we were able to connect what was happening in culture with what a brand stood for and action on that really quickly. To go back to that example of Tokyo Olympics 2020 with SK2, this P&G brand, we had this whole orchestration plan, some of the best agencies in the world. We've done all these offsites. There was the idea many months in the making. The idea was beauty is no competition which was led by this WPP agency that was actually specifically formed just for this program. And Vayner was doing the social and a couple of little things as part of it. And when the Olympics were postponed indefinitely, then we had to completely pivot. And what we ended up moving to was actually a live stream where we brought a lot of their celebrities on. We did the same programming we would have done IRL in Tokyo, but actually did it as a virtual live stream. That was a huge moment for the brand that was able to salvage some of the investment they put into this campaign, but weren't able to leverage while still creating a moment that was delightful and exciting for consumers who were spending a ton of time at home because they lived in Japan and China. They were locked down. That's a good example of how we can pivot and come up with something. And I think that went from here's an idea to shooting it and live during COVID in just a couple of weeks. So it doesn't always have to be these many, many months in advance. And I think COVID really taught a lot of marketers that. It's really interesting to hear about the relevance part. Speaking about the pivot for the skincare company, how do you go from doing Super Bowl ads and Olympics to suddenly talking about digital images and artwork and NFTs and Web3? During COVID, I was in Singapore. And anyone who's followed the news on COVID lockdowns will know Singapore was one of the strictest countries. I didn't leave my house except to get groceries or walk my dog for a good six months. We went from being a company culture where it was in office five days a week and collaboration was our lifeblood to our collaboration needing to happen digitally. And as part of that, I was spending just a tremendous amount of time on my computer, both figuring out things for clients and pivoting plans, and also sort of personally looking into things that I thought were interesting that were digital. And as part of this pivot, we looked a ton into virtual gaming platforms and a ton into live streaming platforms, and a ton into metaverse experiences. And the more research I did on that, I started to realize that many, many millions of people were living in this digital first reality that hadn't been so high on my consciousness until that moment. The more I started to understand that, the more I started to believe that brands and enterprises had this tremendous opportunity to build for this next iteration of the internet, which consumers were actively engaging in already in the gaming world. And they were wanting something that was more personalized and ownable and immersive than what the existing Web2 social platforms enable today. So it played around with a lot of things, like whether it was Decentraland or Sandbox or all of those, just as a user. I dusted off my old Coinbase account and I started to get interested in what was happening in this world of NFTs. I was way more interested in NFTs because what I know is brand building and storytelling. And I think the visual aspect of NFTs unlocked that in a different way for me than altcoins did. 
this collided with Gary getting really interested in what was happening in the world of NFTs with punks as well. And this drove us down this rabbit hole. Hey, there's going to be this new era of culture and also of branded business building happening in this Web3 ecosystem, which ultimately led to Gary deciding to launch VFriends in early 2021, me moving back from Singapore to the United States to actually help drive our Web3 practice as Vayner, and then launch Vayner NFT, which has now become Vayner3, which is our Web3 consultancy at VaynerX. As you were going through that process and starting to think about the early use cases, take us back to what you thought might be the most compelling part of that. Why are people going to understand this? Because I feel like once you started to experience it and you played with an NFT, I can see the ticket. I can see the reward. I can see the loyalty Like for people that played with it. But then I felt when you were communicating this, and I'm just trying to do this to my friends, you're doing this to Fortune 500 brands, they might look at you like you're a little bit crazy. I think they did look at us. We were a little bit crazy. It was early 2021. And we were like, hey, CMO, you don't need to look into NFTs. NF what? Is this a new TikTok? What's happening here? And the earliest use case that I saw and understood, and I still believe in most deeply and most broadly, is the idea of digital social signaling. The same reason I want to have a nice watch or a nice bag is to show everybody how cool I am and awesome I am. The same thing is going to happen with digital items as people spend more and more in their lives digitally. And every piece of consumer research I've read for the last few years has been talking about screen time just goes up, up, up. Gen Alpha just spends more and more time and dedication on their digital first lives. And even for me as a millennial, digital fashion is still kind of a new concept. But for kids who are 10 years old today, that's a concept that they already understand because they already play in Roblox. They already changed their avatar. I think social signaling was the thing that I was like, oh, okay, light bulb moment. This is going to really matter. When we started explaining it to CMOs, into our brand partners at Vayner, including that skincare brand. This is a huge thing. We really believe that this is going to be the next era of the internet that allows people to actually own a part of their internet experience. A lot of the technical jargon didn't resonate, and I think it still doesn't resonate when you're talking about deep blockchain things. That's not something that I've found to resonate with many of our partners. But what does resonate with them is the fact that consumers care about this stuff. And in the early days of 2021, there was such a clear proof point with that with this financial side. We were talking about a $69 million digital art sale. Wow, somebody paid real money for that. Somebody really cares about that. And a few of these watershed moments that became proof points. The time with 2 million users of NBA Topshop, that's a real number of people who are paying for digital trading cards. They didn't care so much about the technology. They cared about the intersection of that technology with cultural relevance. And then they also care about doing things that get people talking about their brand and engaging with their brand. So instead of maybe doing a traditional campaign, maybe they're looking at a way to create relevance and create a moment for their brand related to this Web3 culture. I think the smartest CMOs are the ones who are like, teach me every part of this. I want to buy an NFT. I want to understand this understand the consumer experience. The CMOs and executives broadly who really took the time and are taking the time to understand this world are the ones who are coming up with the most thoughtful use cases for this and deciding how their companies should participate in this because I think there is real business value to be unlocked in the world of Web3 for those who take the time to understand it beyond just a marketing stunt. So in finance, I don't know if this is applicable, but it strikes me of 
trying to understand how risk averse chief marketing officers are. So in finance, there's this idea of career risk. If you manage money, failing conventionally is fine. So even though everyone says they're outperforming and they're doing all of these things, if you're actually doing something very different, you have a chance of two things happening. One, succeeding and doing really well, or two, being fired because you can't point to everyone else was doing it. And so there's this idea of career risk. It's sad, but a lot of people because of that, are incentivized to not go too far out on the ledge. And it might be a conservatism by the industry. But I'm curious, as a CMO, and we've seen this, you have this hype cycle and this fall off, and you've had a crypto winter and a bunch of things that are unrelated. And even though I might believe in the core technology and the connecting with consumers, I'm wondering in the seat of the CMO, how much risk do they feel over like, oh, I don't want to do that thing, or I'm going to wait till Nike does it. I don't want to take that move or versus, no, I'm the CMO. I get to do whatever crazy thing I want. And even cringe things are good because they get people talking about our brand. I love that you just picked up on that last point. I think it's probably least understood by consumers, parts of marketing, that there's no such thing as bad PR, depending on how you look at it. I think career risk is a huge thing. And at Vayner, we also work with a lot of companies that are pretty conservative because they've got a lot to lose. If you're CMO of a Fortune 100 organization, there's limited upside and a lot of downside if you do something that goes the wrong way, particularly if it's financialized. So I think that career risk is a big thing in every industry. Marketers have often been rewarded for pushing the boundaries though. Bold CMOs are celebrated because marketing moments that get people talking often end up driving product trial, product sales, repeat buyers. If you think about marketing campaigns that have probably stuck out in your mind over the years, maybe it's a Colin Kaepernick and Nike thing. Things that are controversial, in fact, are often seen to be strong marketing moves. Not always. There's been the flops. There's been plenty of marketing stunts that were controversial that didn't go well. But I think that that is celebrated in certain companies. In a lot of conservative companies, though, many of which we work with, they want to be on that fine line balance of doing something that's relevant, but is also anchored to their brand purpose. And I think those less risk on, the way they play in this space is by making this really non-financialized. I think the brands who are pushing it a little bit more, whether you're talking about a Nike or an Adidas or an Anheuser-Busch, they're taking a bit more risk with making this financial thing that they're actually directly driving money for. That's not every CMO and that's not every brand. Maybe talk to us about some of the different paths you've seen brands take, how Vayner 3 plays a role in that. So I'm thinking about the example in your research report, which was excellent, of like Adidas and Gucci, to global brands that took a very different approach and how Vayner 3 plays in that. I think 2023 is such a different climate than 2021. Just buying an ENS domain now, that was breakthrough two years ago. <laughs> and now it's like everybody's done it. That gets to the point of constantly reinventing yourself and constantly pushing. What's that new moment of things that consumers care about? We had two archetypes, this idea of a big bang and start off, which is the Adidas example. Like They had this breakthrough partnership with Bored Apes, Punk Comics, and G-Money. And they launched this project into the metaverse with a big splash, $25 million on the initial sale, which got a lot of CMO's eyes popping out of their heads. On the flip side, you had a Gucci approach, which is a little bit more staggered, more true to their brand of stepladder approach of doing different collections that weren't all part of this big announcement that they were making. They were 
continue to participate in a way that feels very authentic to Gucci, the same way they have different lines within their core fashion brand. They've done different things in the Web3 ecosystem without them all being necessarily under this core umbrella versus Adidas, who's really pushed this idea of indigo hers and into the metaverse. And I think there's pros and cons to both. You can argue that Adidas is really like building their Web3 brand. And I think Gucci is doing the same, but in a more flexible canvas where they can go in different directions, depending on what's most salient. I think from what we're seeing with our partners and brands who we work with is there's much more consideration these days if someone's really ready to launch a Web3 initiative. And that big bang and build moment has to be something that's been built up to for some time. If you look at a Puma or a Porsche who both recently dropped NFT collections, you can see that a very specific audience with targeting the Web3 natives. They had been to a lot of Web3 native events and conferences, and they've made an intentional effort to develop this more in that big bang and build model as almost like a standalone business unit focused just on Web3. And I think a lot of more mainstream brands are looking to find ways to integrate Web3 into helping them drive their brand purpose at a broader level without being so focused on the financial side of things, more focused on the like user engagement and building for the future. For every one Beard Audience moment that you've seen, there's 15 strategy decks that we've been working on with clients who might not necessarily be ready to activate. And it makes sense for brands to really educate themselves on this space and consider what's the right move for them. It's not a race to rush something out the same way it was when NFTs were just hopping onto the scene. It's more like, what's the best use of Web3 that intersects with an actual business need for brands or corporations? And what's the path that's going to help them do something that they're proud of and has longevity beyond this PR moment? Because I think that time has passed. But what I can tell you is, so many of these brands and companies are so curious about this space and they're doing a lot of their homework and diligence. And there are a lot of vendors trying to build for what brands may need. The Porsche NFT surprised me because it's a brand that I personally really like. I have lots of friends that are fanatics. The Venn diagram of like love Porsche, like NFTs and didn't really know about it. and was kind of disappointed. It's just this weird thing. Maybe most people will never know what happened or what it was, but it had all the potential to be good. And I think what happened there, they definitely did a great job pivoting in the middle of it. They had an NFU drop. They had way more supply than demand at the price that they were coming out at, which is very expensive, but they were offering a lot of cool benefits underneath it. It's not to be critical of other brands, but what are some of the things that you've noticed now that we've been doing this for two years that brands make common mistakes when they enter the space, they're trying to do something and it doesn't go maybe as well as they had hoped? Certainly not throwing any stones at the man in the arena because I've been there a lot of times and it's not easy when you're at a flurry of Discord messages and you're trying to like fix a tech solution and there's a million things going on. I think Porsche did a lot of things right coming into the drop. They had a defined audience that they wanted to target Web3 natives. They have partnerships with folks who are NFT influencers, done a big thing at the NFT Now Gateway exhibit, and they hosted this dinner and they gave out these little mini Porsches at said event. They'd solicited the advice of many people in the space. Clearly, they had a revenue objective behind this because almost a full ETH per NFT is pretty far above the benchmark for what we've seen from other brand prices who've typically been in the like 0.2 range. But again, they're Porsche. It's a luxury item. So I think they were looking to do something tied into that. 
it's very challenging to gauge supply and demand. And we've had cases where we have over gauged how many people will be interested. We've had things that sell out in a minute. We've had things that take three weeks to sell out. And a fun fact is that actually VFriends took three weeks to sell out. People forget that because it's such a well-known project, but that wasn't an immediate sellout either. I have a lot of empathy that it's hard to sell out and there's this expectation in Web3 that it's going to sell out immediately, which is not an expectation that any other marketer is used to having. If you make too much tequila, you don't need to sell out in a day. But in Web3, if you are not selling out fast, that's the thing that gives people anxiety. But one of the most clear things to me there was the fact that they had a lot of supply. Balancing the idea of scarcity and scale is a thing that you need to calibrate as the leader of the project. It would have been a really smart idea for them to do an open edition for 91 minutes or something like that. I think open editions are a great way for brands to let the market decide the quantity versus a mistake I see people making is they have too much supply. It doesn't sell through. The floor price starts dipping below mint. And then it creates a lot of anxiety for the community and for the brand. So it's a reason that I love open editions. And I also love NFTs that are more accessible price point wise. So yeah, I think that's one thing that I recommend brands consider as they're looking to price things out. You mentioned VFriends and I'd be interested to get your take on advising people on brands, helping run your own brand, specifically some of the things that you've seen with VFriends. Or one topic I think that might be a fun place to start I find that some of these systems can get quite complex. You got to do this to do that, to do this thing, to do that thing. And sometimes I think about that as a really big hurdle or pain point. I want to support the brand, but I don't have time to be in discords and read telegram chats and stay on top of it, but I'm a fan. And then other times I think of it as, well, this is really the gating feature to be like, if you want to show that you're one of the super, super fans, you really have done all the contortions to get to this level to show you really care about something. And so I think just the complexity of how these brands get built and VFriends in particular is a really interesting project. Maybe some of the stuff that you've learned from that launch. So I think VFriends has been a major learning experience for everybody at Vayner who has been close to it at all. Andy Cranach actually runs the VFriends team. He led Gary's content for many years. So he's super attuned to like how Gary would react to a certain situation. And I think VFriends has navigated these waters in just such a strategic way, starting from the idea of time bounding the VFriends series one for three years, which allows us and the team to like really plan out and delivering an amazing conference. Eric, we'd love to have you join us this year. So please do. In doing a really great conference for three years without this lifetime pass thing, I'll add that to the list of mistakes not to make is don't offer this lifetime VIP pass. If you're doing an NFT, I think it's very hard to fulfill. It's a, it's a very hard precedent to set. So three years, super smart. Idea of book games, super smart, which was if you bought 12 of Gary's book, 12 and a half, you got a free NFT, which was on Immutable X. Genius Series 2, which allowed characters to evolve into their new look and feel to even now Burn Island. These are all like four really breakthrough programs, in my opinion, that have, again, been adaptable and agile to where the market is and what consumers want and engaging Gary's community. I think that's something that they've really grown to expect from VFriends is engagement, whether it's the weekly newsletter or the weekly roundup or discord or having Gary pop into things or token gated experiences, just the level of detail and thought and strategy that's manifested in BeFriends is pretty impressive. And some of the challenges that have come along with that is it's a lot of work to run it. 
that's a team of over 20 people. And Beacon has its own team now specifically to help us organize speakers and sponsors and all the programming, everything that goes into that. The social media management from Discord to Twitter to Instagram to animation, all of that takes time. And prioritization is also important. Yes, catering to the vFriends community of today while also building the vFriends brand of tomorrow through partnerships like Uno cards or the starter jackets or the Toys R Us. I think the level of strategy that Gary's put into it has been something that we often use as a blueprint when we're helping discuss things with our brand partners and use case studies. And then some of those things really work and we're like, great, let's scale that. Some of them were like, Burn Island's pretty complicated. I'm not sure that's going to make sense. I think that's one of the things is sometimes we see things and think it's easy. Throwing a conference, I don't think people understand. And we've seen this of other conferences that got started and aren't going to make that, how hard some of these things are and how, like to your point, they're dedicated teams working on all these different parts. And bringing them all together as well for one cohesive friends brand. There is a lot of work and people that go behind this. Gary makes it look easy because he's a CEO. 40 companies, but there's a tremendous amount of his time as well that goes into friends to shaping the direction, helping scale it internationally, develop the animations. All of this stuff has to be concepted, script written, animation done, reviewed, tweaked. It is a lot of work, but I think Andy has also just done an incredible job pulling all of this off and making it look so easy while also maintaining this incredibly close connection to the community that I think is partially possible because he spent so much of his career doing community management for Gary. So he really understands being super in touch with those super fans in a way that most marketers just don't get. How fast is the car going? What I mean by that is, I guess it kind of goes to the prior question of like it feeling like magic to me, the simpleton. I see Gary on Twitter, literally drawing a picture of an animal and kind of joking about it. And then suddenly, boom, we're going to issue, I'm going to take over 1990s cartoons. I always wonder like how much of that is, he knows we're going to do that. So we already had a meeting. So we worked on that. So now I'm going to produce the content of me drawing versus literally he was just drawing. And the next day you guys are in a meeting room and you're like, I want to go create a cartoon series. I think a lot of these are things that Gary's been thinking about for many years. He had this concept of workplace warriors where the content pillars that he's talking about for the last decade and it's content, empathy, patience, kindness, tenacity, He had this idea of turning them into stuffed animal characters and putting them on people's desks. So it's like, okay, I'm going to look at my empathy elephant and try to be nice to my coworker. I think there was some prototyping, but that died off. And then the NFT boom was happening. He's like, this is the moment to bring workplace warriors into this new thing, which I'm going to turn into VFriends as a brand. I think it's 51% strategy and 49% agility. If I had to like boil it down, the science of what I've observed of working with Gary, because for every one idea that's in the wild and live and you see, there's eight that we killed. Hey, we might even get pretty far with it. And we're like, okay, I think this is going to be great. And then it's like, "Mm, nah, let's scrap it. We were going to do this big session earlier this week with a bunch of our clients on this new topic we were excited about. And then we were talking about it over text. And it was like, you know what? Let's scrap it. We're not ready. We don't think this is going to be 100. And there's a lot of that that goes on too with work and prep and learning and then deciding we're going to leave that on the cutting room floor. And that's never an easy thing to do either. But oftentimes prioritization is essential if we're going to do anything really right at 100%. Tell me more about that. Let's say Gary wakes up and he's like, I've got a crazy idea and I love it. And it's I really want everyone to do it. Now there's a team of people working on it. 
is it, I think this is stupid and I'm going to tell them and then we're going to kill it. Is it a committee? Like how did decisions get made specifically? I think for creative types, I find myself doing this is you get really excited about an idea and you don't want to distract other people, but it's still gnawing at you. And you've got to know when to like cut bait and move on to the next one. How does that process work in such a creative place? Gary will have big ideas all the time. He has a kernel. We need to turn this into a real thing. That's like, how would this happen? How much would it cost? Who would we need to do it? What are the key pieces that would be needed to make this reality? Come back with, this is what we think. And then as we get a little further along with it, if here are the seven reasons that this is a horrible idea, let's not, then we'll park it. Or we're like, wow, this kernel could really be huge for us. Let's run at this. Then we'll make that decision as well. Good ideas at Vayner have come from everywhere the beer.eth idea, which is literally a community manager on my team. So also creating a culture where people are celebrated for bringing these new ideas. Gary's done a great job at that. Once we sort of have it, we think it makes sense. Either we'll blow it out and run with it. And if it's sort of like a big push, we'll run it by Gary and get his two cents because he has a great pulse in the market. And that's how we ended up with our office in Japan in our office in Sydney was, hey, we've got this thought. This is how we ended up with our office in Miami. I just finished doing a site visit at our new spot. And I was like, hey, I think Miami is going to be a thing. And he was like, really? And I was like, yeah, research it. This is a plan. This is what we need. Okay, green light, go ahead. So now we started with traditional marketing. We went through the Web3 transition. I'm curious with the downturn in crypto, when you're going to brands today, One point you made was, we're not in a rush, let's get this right. But I think one thing that I'm curious about is how funny I find it when someone says, we're not issuing NFTs like the Reddit example, but if we're issuing digital collectibles, somehow people buy millions of them. So I'm curious and take us into the today where crypto is under pressure, a lot of bad things have happened, how brands are responding to Vayner3's pitches now. We don't get to pick the words that stick with consumers. So it might not be NFTs. And even the idea of blockchain being something that consumers are really care about, that might not be it. But I think that the NFT bubble bursting and the like cool off in the crypto market obviously created a lot of anxiety for a lot of brand builders who are participating in the space and their finance partners as well, the CFOs. I think the FTX thing, we've yet to fully feel the total ripples from that. But that was a major leading US exchange that improperly used billions of dollars of retail investor funds. And that was a huge thing, a huge problem. We immediately sent out a message to our partners. Fortunately, we had never done anything with FTX. They were not a client. We weren't involved with them whatsoever. And not to point a finger at them, but I think there was a combination of a couple of things that happened in rapid succession that deteriorated mainstream optimism in the crypto cycle for now. Crypto is super cyclical and it'll come back around. The part of the cycle that we're in now is not one where average Americans have a positive impression of crypto. I think defining Web3 more broadly is what has resonated with our partners and has also resonated with us as Vayner. The end of the day, yes, certain Fortune 500s are set up to take crypto. And yes, some of them made a little bit of money from this NFT boom. But really, we're talking about a very small amount of money for these companies multi-billion dollar companies making 10 million bucks. Yeah, it's definitely nice, but that wasn't really changing their business. It was more starting to build into this new financial world. We define Web3 pretty expansively. We actually just posted a white paper today talking about how we really view Web3 as the next iteration of connected consumer behavior. And it's driven by this digital first reality for consumers. 
and driven by the fact that consumers actually want an internet that's immersive and personalized and ownable. So while consumers may not care about blockchain or NFTs or metaverse, they do care about an internet that encompasses all of those things. So we try to focus on the consumer need and the consumer preference outside of being anchored to these technologies. Or a lot of people will often say like, we're onboarding brands into Web3. And I think that's somewhat true, but really we're guiding enterprises through this next iteration of connected consumer behavior, less so than evangelizing Web3 technology to enterprises. What are the things that you're most excited about? I know that you, Sam and Carly just announced some pretty cool stuff with ticketing and NFTs, but maybe touch on that. But what are the areas you're most excited about when you're seeing the Web3 adoption cycle of what people are going to try for the upcoming year? I think it's a couple of things that I'm excited about. I'm excited for enterprises to like really commit to building the space and start designing programs that embrace what's happening in the world of Web3. I'm really excited for the digital fashion use cases to expand. I think we're seeing some use cases in this space already, particularly in luxury, that is done well, but there's so much more that can happen, both in this blockchain world and beyond. You know, I mentioned this a bit, but to us, Roblox or Fortnite have more in common with NFT culture than people really give them credit for. It's the same idea of digital social signaling, digital first reality. And, and when you survey these people and you ask them about ownership, they actually do feel like they own those assets. So we're at this tension of understanding that there are a lot of commonalities while these groups still feel very separate. In fact, their motivations are very similar. So I'm excited about that. Continue to be excited about ticketing as a use case that I think people will start to embrace a little bit more, giving longevity to their ticket beyond just the initial QR scan at the venue. And then fourth, I believe that there's a killer app coming in one of these startups. We haven't yet seen something since Topshot that really galvanized people in this net new way. We've seen certain brands do Web3 native brands, I'll mention Yuka, do a really good job of captivating their audiences time and time again. Their Ordinals project being another example of them continuing to innovate. But I think there will be this killer use case that drives in millions again. And we're excited to continue to have our finger on the pulse and try to navigate what that looks like. That's awesome. Avery, we end the podcast with the same question every time. What are you most excited to build or help build over the next six months and then over the next six years? Over the next six months, a couple of exciting things happening in the world of CPG, bridging more traditional companies with the Web3 ecosystem. So I'm very fired up about that. Hopefully we'll have some announcements coming soon. I'm excited about landing this definition of Web3. I think brands and enterprises are craving a definition for what Web3 really means. So excited to share this and spread this around to our partners as we solidify what we're focused on for this year. And then in the next six years, I would really love to launch a brand or take over a brand. Always been something I wanted to do is leverage the powers of marketing and now the powers I believe in Web3 to actually launch a new consumer brand. I have no doubt you will, and I can't wait to see you do it, Avery. Thank you so much. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 